beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, in the church that I grew up in, um, if you showed up on Sunday morning, they say that you love the pastor. Uh, if you showed back up on Sunday night, they said you love the church. And if you actually showed back up on Wednesday, then you love Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure what it means for you all to be here on a day like today. I mean, it, apparently you just should be missionaries somewhere. Uh, I, I mean, you're so brave and you, you've gone out in the midst of, you know, just treachery uh, and uh, in the midst of, you know, the coming abysmal weather that is still somewhere out there. Uh, but for those of you who are joining us with pancakes and Jesus and uh, in your pajamas, we're not bitter. We're, we're just, we just think we're better. And and um, no, I'm just kidding. Hey, uh, we are glad you're here. Uh, last week, we kicked off a series talking about a fisherman from Galilee uh, who became famous all because he decided to follow a rabbi from Nazareth by the name of Jesus. And, and we started talking about John, who was a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but John was Jesus's best friend and Jesus's cousin. Think about that for a moment. Think about your best friend and, and think about your cousin's. And, and just think about them for a moment, you know, all that you know about them and all that you think about them and what they know that you think about them and then all the things you think about them that they don't know you think about them. And just think about that for just a moment and then imagine what it would be like to be Jesus's best friend and Jesus's cousin. That, that was John. John was Jesus's best friend and cousin. But more striking than that is this. Not only was John Jesus's best friend and cousin, but Jesus was John's Savior and Lord. John had a best friend. He was a rabbi from Nazareth. His name was Jesus. It also happened to be his first cousin. But yet, even though it was his cousin and even though it was his best friend, John decided that Jesus was also his Savior and Lord. And I find that incredibly significant. And I think that you should find that uh, incredibly significant as well. Because if anybody knew the real Jesus, John would have known the real Jesus. If Jesus had a guard to let down in front of anybody, he would have let it down in front of his best friend and cousin, John. If anybody would have had the goods on Jesus, if there were goods to have on Jesus, it would have been John. Because John saw more than anybody else. John heard more than anybody else. John knew more than anybody else when it came to Jesus. He was there in the private moments when no one else was around. John actually heard what Jesus said about people when people walked away. He knew Jesus better than anybody else knew Jesus. And yet, he concluded, this is my Savior and this is my Lord. 
And the reason that he concluded that was he heard the messages of Jesus. He heard those messages. He saw the miracles of Jesus. And most of all, and best of all, he saw Jesus die, and he was a witness of the fact that Jesus had come back to life because they had breakfast together on the side of the seashore in Galilee after a long night of fishing. So John came to the conclusion, matter of fact, it was the only conclusion that he knew that he could come to. He came to the conclusion that Jesus, his cousin, his best friend, was the Son of God. And if he was the Son of God, then he must be the Savior of the world. But more personal for John, he was his Savior. And so John, what he wanted to do is he wanted to let the world know who Jesus was. He wanted the world to be confronted with the information that John himself had been confronted with. He wanted the world to hear some of the things that he had heard. He wanted the world to be able to see some things that he saw. He, he wanted the world to know what he knew so that the world, and specifically you and me, that we would wrestle with the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And maybe, just maybe, we would conclude by faith that Jesus was the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then he must be the Savior of the world. He is my Savior. And so John, he wanted to write a biography about Jesus so that the whole world would know, so that you would know, so that I would know. So somewhere towards the end of the first century, somewhere in the early 90s perhaps, John either sat down and wrote the Gospel of John, which is a biography. He wrote his biography either by hand or he dictated it to somebody else. Either way, it came from John's perspective. It came from John's firsthand account, his eyewitness account of Jesus. And so here's how John finished up his gospel. We looked at these last week. This is where we'll pick it up this week. John said, Jesus performed many other signs. And the word signs is crucial for us to understand the biography, the gospel, according to John. He said, Jesus performed many other signs, which I'm not going to write about. Jesus did a whole bunch of other things that, that I'm not going to put down in this particular account. Matter of fact, in, in the following chapter in John 21, he's going to speak hyperbolically and he's going to say, you know what, if I tried to write down all the miracles that Jesus performed, no, th those miracles could not be contained in all the volumes, in all of the books, in all of the world. He said it just would be impossible. Jesus performed so many miracles, I don't have time to write them all, but the ones that I'm writing are strategic. The ones that I'm writing, they are intentional. I'm writing them as signs. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the signs that I've decided to write about, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write down some articles of evidence. I'm going to present into this particular case that I'm making evidence for you to decide whether or not you can trust me as an eyewitness, whether or not you can decide whether you're going to trust me in my account, am I trustworthy or not? He says, I'm going to give signs. And these signs are evidence because that's how faith works. Faith is not a step into the darkness, you know, based on ignorance, but it's actually a step in the direction of Jesus based on information. And you follow the evidence and you follow the facts until they lead you to the truth. And then you absorb and you investigate as much as the truth as you can. And then in the end, 
then you will decide whether or not you can take a step of faith to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. Because John knew that faith is not the absence of, you know, of, of doubt, and it's not the presence of certainty. He understood that you can get all of these facts, and you, you, can, you, know, you can examine all of these articles of evidence that you want, but still in the end, you and I will have to make a step of faith. And he said, that's what this gospel is all about. And so by the time John wrote this, he was late in his life and he was probably maybe around 90 years old, uh, maybe just a little bit younger than that. But he had plenty of time, he had decades uh, to grasp all the things that Jesus said. He had all the time in the world to grasp and understand all the things that Jesus did. And he had time to think about and process who Jesus claimed to be. And so he had decades to think about this and process this. And, and John, who became a pastor, had undoubtedly been asked by, you know, who knows how many people, thousands of people over the course of his life, John, tell us about Jesus. John, tell us about Jesus. John, tell us about your time with Jesus. Tell us about, you know, that day that he did this. And tell us about that time that he said this. And so he had had plenty of time to refine all the events in Jesus' life that he saw as so profound that led him to a place of faith. Because John was convinced that Jesus was God's son. Not so much because of what he believed, but because of what he saw. The things that he heard. The proximity that he had to touch Jesus. And at the end of that, he concluded that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he wrote about all of this. And he wrote about it in such a way as to say, you should wrestle with the question, who is Jesus. And once you come to an answer on who is Jesus, you will know then how to live your life. If you determine that Jesus is not God's son, then that tells you how you should live your life. Go live your life ever how you want to live your life. But if you conclude that Jesus is God's son, that he is the savior of the world, then that too also informs you as to how you should live your life. And if he is God's son, if he is the savior of the world, then you should follow him. And you should pay attention to him and you should obey him. You should adore him. You should stand in awe of him. When you ask the question, who is Jesus? And when you come to a place where you are ready to answer that, it also answers how you should live the rest of your life. And so John, to begin his introduction to Jesus, he begins with Christmas, but really he begins before Christmas. He begins with the beginning of all beginnings. We looked at this last week, but we have to look at it again to get to where we need to get to today. He says this, he says, in the beginning, the beginning of all beginnings, the beginning that was before the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And we talked about, if you weren't here last week, that the word is the Greek word logos. It's, it's speaking of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word or Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things, through this logos, through Jesus, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And this is lofty and this is heavy and this is consequential. He, he, he says all of this to us so that he can jump down a few lines later to say this, that this logos that has been with God from the beginning, that has been God from the beginning, that has created all things, that word, Jesus, became flesh. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's when the invisible God became visible man, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John's talking personally. He made his dwelling among us. I saw him. I heard him. I put my hands on him. I walked with him. I was related to him. He's my best friend. That God became a man. 
and he dwelled among us. He dwelled among me and my brother James and Nathaniel and Peter and all the other guys. He made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. He walked among us. He talked with us. He says, the word of God, God the word, the creator has become a man. And so we left it here last week by saying that at Christmas, the timeless and spaceless God who created the world stepped into time and space in order to redeem the world. And so the point is, John said, Christmas ought to be a time full of wonder for you and full of wonder for me. That as you ponder the real meaning of the season, as you ponder the real meaning of Christmas, you, you, should, you should be in wonder. You should find this season full of meaning that the timeless, spaceless God entered into time and space to redeem the world, to redeem you, to redeem me. And so John's writing about all of this. And, and really, he's trying to find words to something that there really isn't words for, words for, excuse me. He's trying to find language for something that human language really can't adequately describe. And so he begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning, and all things that were made have been made through him, and nothing that was made that was made has been made apart from him. And he gives us all of this, and then he continues to try to describe Jesus and his incarnation in Christmas the best way he knows how, and he says this. He says, in him was life. This Word... This, this logos, this infinite, timeless, spaceless God that has entered into time and space, John says, in him, my cousin, Jesus, in him, my best friend, in him, my savior, my Lord, in him who I think and believe and am convinced is the son of God, in him was life. Everybody just say life, life. He says, that, that's the only way I know how to say it, that, that in him was life. And I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, we read these verses and we hear these verses and we've heard people recite these verses. And, and we don't stop to think of how profound it is that John is saying this about another man, that John is saying this about another person, that he's saying this about his cousin. He's saying this about his best friend. He says, in him was life. And here's what John was saying. That Jesus, the Logos, the Word, is responsible for all life. Wherever you find life, on this earth, above this earth, wherever you may find life outside in the cosmos, if there is life out there in the cosmos, he says, rest assured that wherever there is life, that life originated with him, that he is the causation, he is the creator, he is the designer of all life. If creation is the effect, John said, Jesus is the cause. And this is a big deal because, again, this brings us front and center with how massive and how huge and how awesome and incredible and magnificent and awe-inspiring and striking Jesus actually is. We think about Jesus on the hillside. We think about Jesus asleep in the bow of the boat. We think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We think about Jesus sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners. But John said, as attractive and as lovely and as true and consequential as all of that may be, do not forget how big he is. Do not forget how awesome he is. Do not forget that he should, uh, he should inspire you to awe and inspire you to wonder. He says, in him was life, all life. 
single-celled life, multicellular life, all the life that's in the plant kingdom and all the life that's in the animal kingdom. He said, they find their origin in him. And even you and even me, as the scriptures would say, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That you have three billion characters of your DNA that have come together in just the precise way as to give you life. To give you your unique set of characteristics that makes you, you. That your life right now, your biological life, all the functions of your cells in all of their division and replication that's going on right now as dead cells move away and as new cells replicate, all of that that's going on right now without you even thinking about it. He says, that life is in him. All biological life is in Jesus. Wherever you find anything with a biological process in him, that's where it found its origin. And so John, he's giving us this picture of Jesus to say that in Jesus is all biological life. But it's bigger than that. And John would actually say it's better than that. Because John will tell us throughout his gospel in many different ways that in Jesus is not only biological life, but in Jesus is eternal life. In a verse that many of you know so well that you could quote it. You may not know where it's at. You may not know chapter and verse, but you've heard it before. And perhaps you can recite it from memory. John will give us commentary on this in John 3 at verse 16. When John says, for God so loved the world. John, looking back on the life of Jesus, looking back on the implications of what Jesus said, who Jesus was, and what Jesus did. John said, here's the conclusion. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whosoever believes, not behaves, but believes on him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Because John would say in him is not only biological life, but in Jesus is eternal life. Jesus was talking one day to a woman at the well, a promiscuous woman at the well, and a woman that he shouldn't have really been talking to at all. There were racial tensions there. There were gender t uh, tensions there. There were moral tensions there. Here's Jesus talking to this woman at the well in John chapter 4, and, and, and it's really a painfully emotional conversation that Jesus has with this woman, and, and she's got some secrets, and she's got some skeletons in her closet, and, and Jesus is pointing some of those skeletons out and bringing them out of the dark and into the light, and and it's this magnificent conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. And Jesus comes up to this woman and asks her for a drink, and there ensues that conversation. But towards the end of the conversation, Jesus, he's standing there at the well, perhaps sitting with this woman at the well, and using this well as a backdrop, and, and using the bucket of water as a backdrop. Here's what Jesus says to the woman. I will give you a drink of water. And the woman was like, but you've asked me for a drink of water. And Jesus said, no, I will give you a drink of water. And whoever drinks the water that I give to them will never be thirsty again. Matter of fact, whoever drinks the water that I give, when they drink that water, that water wells up into eternal life. That's what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I give something that no one else can give. I bring a satisfaction that nothing or no one else can bring. I give to you life, living water. Later on, Jesus is going to be talking to the Pharisees, and he's going to remind them about their past. 
You know, the past of Israel, when Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God fed them with manna from heaven. And, and for 40 years, they ate the manna, right? And Jesus said, your fathers who wandered in the wilderness, they ate the manna that God gave them from heaven and they died. But then Jesus, he, he, he made a profound statement. He said, but I am the bread of life, which has come down from heaven. And whoever eats of this bread will never Let me tell you what you think about sometimes when the lights are off. Sometimes when you're sitting out there in the waiting room of the doctor. Sometimes when you're waiting, waiting for the doctor to come in with the results. Sometimes when you hear about someone else who got some bad news or whenever you visit a funeral home or sometimes just in the randomness of life. From time to time to time, perhaps you think about dying. You think about the finality of it. You think about the horror of it. You think about the sadness of it. You think about how you don't want to leave her. You don't want to leave him. You don't want to leave them. Because the arch nemesis that the world has faced since the dawn of humanity is death. And Jesus said, I am the answer to death. I am the source of eternal life eternal life, that if you follow me, if you eat of this bread, if you drink of this water, you will never die. John said, in him was life. It was biological. It was eternal, but it was also a better life. Jesus would say this, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the to full, that you might have it to a level that's extraordinary, that you may have life abundantly. Jesus said, I've come not only to give you eternal life after death, but I've come to give you a better life before death. Now listen to me. I think we can all agree that following Jesus just makes you better. And following Jesus should make you better. Following Jesus will make you a better man. It'll make you a better woman. It'll make you a better husband. It'll make you a better father. It'll make you a better person. When you actually follow Jesus, do what Jesus says, when you obey and apply the teachings and the principles of Jesus, listen, it makes life better. doesn't make life easier, but it makes life better. And that's what Jesus spent so much of his time teaching. He spent so much of his time teaching about how to have a better life. That's why Jesus would say, hey, listen, you can either live arrogantly or humbly. And humble, humble living, having humility is far better than having arrogance living life with pride. He said, the proud seem bigger than life, but they're gonna be cast down. The humble, they seem like they're no ones, but they're gonna be brought high. He says, a better life is to be humble and not arrogant. Jesus would teach his followers that it's better to forgive than to hold grudges. He says, you want a better life? Learn to forgive. Matter of fact, get good at forgiving because you're gonna to have to do a whole lot of forgiving in life. That forgiving is better than holding a grudge. That contentment is better than covetousness. That being content with what you have, not worrying about what you don't have, is a far superior way to live your life than always worried about what you don't have or worrying about that you want more of what you already have. Jesus said, if you want a better life, not necessarily an easier life, but a better life, contentment is far better than covetousness. Jesus would say, let me tell you where a better life begins. It begins with being a giver rather than a receiver or a taker. If you wanna understand how life can be and how much better life can be, an extraordinary and fulfilling life can be, 
He said, start giving. Be a giver. Don't just get hung up on receiving and taking, but learn to be a giver because it's a better way to live. Learn to serve others instead of waiting for people to serve you. It's far better. It's a better way to live. Love is better than hate. And Jesus would go on and on and on and on and on about what a better life looks like. And he says, the thief will come and steal and kill and destroy the life that I've come to give. I have come to give you eternal life and a better life. And John, he's thinking about his friend and his cousin, and he's thinking in him was life. But not only that, but in him was resurrection life. And, and this is something we, we talk a lot about, about Jesus concerning, but we don't talk a lot about when it comes to us, resurrection. Because it, it seems, you know, it seems a bit, hmm, I don't know about that. Resurrection, it just seems, it seems too supernatural for some people to believe in or whatnot. But here's the thing about it. Jesus, he, he went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Matter of fact, he was supposed to have been there four days earlier, but he was actually four days late. And Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, she was kind of ticked off about it and she's kind of pointed. And she's one of those ladies who didn't care to speak her mind. And so she walked up to Jesus and said, hey, you're late. And if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead right now. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, you know, Martha, 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 your brother's going to live again. And Martha was like, I know he's going to live again, Jesus. I know there's going to be a resurrection at the end of days. I know that. I don't need a sermon right now. And Jesus says, Martha, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And though a man die, if he follows me, yet shall he live. And here's what Christians have believed since the resurrection of Jesus. Christians have believed that when you place your faith in Jesus, when you believe that Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead, we believe that one day those who die in Jesus will be also raised from the dead. Christians have always believed that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But Christians have always believed that because of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, that one day someday when the time comes that Jesus will speak and even those in the graves will hear his voice and they will be raised up and they will receive a glorified body. Body, an eternal body, an infinite body to live with him forever and ever. And Jesus said, you follow me, you may die, yet shall you live. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. That sounds like good news. And John said, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now, we're going to talk about that on December the 23rd. And then he goes on and he says, the light, this life, this light, it shines into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to talk about that on Christmas Eve, so don't miss it. And so John, he's talking about the word in the beginning. It was with God. It was God. It created all things. In this word, this logos, in Jesus was life. And in this life, it was light. And it existed for all mankind. And it shines into the darkness. And the darkness does not comprehend it. And this is all connected to what he ultimately brings us to again. That the word became flesh. This life became flesh. This light became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And then John says this, we have seen his 
I grew up in church, sometimes people just shout. I, some of you, you're too sophisticated to know what that church even looks like or sounds like, but sometimes in the midst of church, somebody go, all right, all right. I never knew what it meant. I don't think they did either. But they heard somebody else say it, and they go, all right. You know, that's kind of a Christian word, a church word. You know, glory be to God, the glory of God. Well, what in the world does it mean? John says that Jesus became a man and he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. This, this, is, this, is, this is significant because glory was the sum total of all of God's attributes. The sum total of all of God's attributes. Everything that God is, everything that God ever will be, John says, became a man and dwelt among us. And and he was my cousin. He, he was my friend. That we beheld the glory of God. Because the glory of God has always wanted to dwell among his people. He says he dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. This was the glory. You know, John, he's Jewish. He's writing as a Jewish guy. He's writing with a pre-existing narrative in his mind. and he, He's writing with thousands of years of Jewish history in his mind. And He's undoubtedly thinking back to the Garden of Eden because when, when our first parents were there, Adam and Eve, it says that they walked with God in the cool of the day and there was God in the garden with them and God in all of his glory. And there was no degree of separation between God and his creation. There he was among his creation. And then sin entered in and then there was a fracture and there was a separation and man had to leave the garden. But God always longed to be back among his creation. That's his heart. He, he wanted to be with us. He wanted to be near us. And so when his people became a nation, he told Moses, he said, Moses, build a tabernacle so that I can dwell among the people. And in Exodus chapter 40, it says that Moses dedicated the tabernacle of God and then the glory of God filled the tabernacle. It was God wanting to be among his people because that's always been the heart of God. God hasn't been angry, turning away. God hasn't been fuming. God hasn't been ticked off. God has been constantly, over the course of human history, looking for a way, longing for a way, pursuing a way to be back with those he loved. Solomon came along. Solomon built a temple. And when he dedicated it, it says the glory of God filled the temple. It says it filled the temple to such a degree that they fell on their faces because of the greatness of the glory of God. Then later on, because the people of God kept rejecting God and they kept rebelling against God, God sent the prophets to warn them. And one day Ezekiel shows up and says, hey, I just want you to know that there's coming a day that if you keep rebelling and resisting and rejecting God, that God is going to depart. The glory of God is going to depart Israel. It's going to leave the temple. It's going to go out the front door. It's going to cross over the mountainside, and the glory of God is going to depart. And that was, you know, that was tantamount to God abandoning his people. And that's exactly what happened. The glory of God departed Israel. But for John, when he thought about Christmas, he thought about Christmas as when the glory of God actually returned. We beheld his glory. And here's the, here's the more practical side of what John's saying. Because I think we all should just, you know, ask the question, well, how, how did you behold his glory? What does that really mean? What, is, this, is this practical? Is this, is this mystical? Is this spiritual? What do you mean, John? Here's how John beheld his glory. 
Remember those sign miracles that John said, I'm going to write about a certain set of signs, evidence? There's seven major sign miracles that's, that's recorded in John. And John strategically picked these particular miracles that Jesus performed as a way to say, these were performed in the midst of his disciples. These were performed in front of the viewing public. And all of these miracles of what Jesus did, it gives credence to who Jesus claimed to be. It helps us come front and center with the idea that Jesus just might be the Son of God. He just might be the Savior of the world. And so John, he tells us stories about how Jesus' first miracle happened in a place called Canaan, Canaan of Galilee. And Jesus went to a wedding with his friends and with his mother. And there he's going to turn water to wine because in John's mind, not only was Jesus Savior and Lord, but he was a heck of a bartender because he showed up at the first, you know, wedding that he'd ever been to perhaps. And while they were there, John tells the story of how they ran out of wine. Now, they were celebrating. And in those days, people took off work. They took vacation days and they went to this wedding and they stayed for the reception, which could last days. And it says, it's really a comical story. You should read it sometime on your own, but you can read about it in John chapter 2. They're there, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, I just imagine it went something like this. She, she poured, and then she looks at Jesus and said, Jesus. And Jesus looks at his mom and says, yes, mom. Honey, they've ran out of wine. And Jesus, kind of knowing what his mom was thinking, was like, mom, I don't want to. Don't bring me into this. I don't want to do this right now. Come on. Can, can we just be here and not do the thing? And she looks at him without words like moms can do. And then she looks at all of his friends and says, whatever he says to do, do it because he's about to do something. And then Jesus told them to bring in six water pots and then they filled it all with water. And then Jesus told them to get some out of one of those water pots. And they took the cup up there to the master of ceremonies and he took a big drink of it and he said, ha, ah, this is interesting. Normally people at parties serve the best wine first and when everybody's drunk a lot of it, then they bring out the chief stuff because they won't know the difference. He said, but this, you've saved the best to last. And John said that was the beginning of Jesus' miracles when he revealed his glory to us. And then John gives us these miracles to say, you know what? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, in the midst of a disappointing circumstance, Jesus stepped in and turned the circumstances around. That when the wines of this world dry up, that Jesus is able to step in and make new wine. A new wine that satisfies. A new wine that is superior. A new wine that is unlike the wines of this world. That Jesus can step into your moment of heaviness and give you a garment of praise. He can step in to the oil of your mourning and he can actually give you joy in your heart. He, this is what he's talking about. And he goes on and he talks about a nobleman's son. That Jesus spoke a word and 20 miles away the guy was healed. That a man was sick for 38 years and Jesus changed him in a moment. Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. That he walked on water. That he healed a man born blind. And he healed and raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and John tells these stories and he said, every time Jesus performed one of these miracles, it was watching the glory of God. He said, the word became flesh made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And then he adds this, the glory of the one and only Son 
And that little term, one and only, means one of a kind. It means it's the only thing like it that exists. The glory of the one and only son. John said, when I think back on my cousin, my best friend, my savior, my Lord, and I think about what he did at Canaan, and I think about what he did when he walked on the water, and I think about that nobleman's son, he just spoke the word, he just spoke the word, and he was healed. I think about how we only had a little bit of food, but he served up 5,000 men lunch, probably maybe around 20,000 when you count the women and the children, and there were still baskets left over. When, when I think about how he took a man that was born blind and he healed him, the only thing I know, it was like watching the one and only son of God, that there is not another person like Jesus. And John was absolutely convinced about it, that he was one of a kind because of his birth. Nobody had ever had a birth like Jesus. Jesus' birth had been predicted for over a thousand years. The prophet said he's going to come from Abraham's lineage. And then God said, not only is he going to come from Abraham's lineage, but he's going to come from Isaac's lineage and not Ishmael. And he's going to come from Jacob and not Esau. And then among Jacob's 12 sons, he's going to come from one of Jacob's 12 sons by the name of Judah. So when the son of God comes, the Messiah comes, he's going to come out of the tribe of Judah. But when he comes, not only will he come out of the tribe of Judah, but he'll come from the line of Jesse. But look for him in the line of Jesse among Jesse's youngest son, David, because out of the house of David, the Messiah will be born. But when he's born, he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. 700 years before it actually happened, the prince of prophets, Isaiah, said, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Micah came along and said, Bethlehem. Isaiah said, behold, when he's born in Bethlehem, the Lord's going to give you a sign that he shall be born to a virgin. Then Isaiah said, when he shows up, he's going to have a ministry. It's going to begin in Galilee. There's going to come a time that the Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, according to the prophet Zechariah. He's going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. They're going to spit in his face. They're going to bruise him. They're going to pierce him. They're going to wound him. He's going to be silent in front of his accusers. I mean, his birth, his life predicted hundreds of years before he ever showed up. And John said, are you kidding me? He's one of a kind. He had a one-of-a-kind life. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was tempted in every way that you are, in every way that I am. There's no sin that he was not tempted in. There was nothing that he doesn't know the sting of, yet he without sin. He's a man of sorrows. He knows what it feels like. He knows the pull of sin. He knows the pull of temptation, yet sinless himself he had a one-of-a-kind life he had a one-of-a-kind claim jesus said i am the father we are one jesus said i am the way i am the truth i am the life and no one no one can come to the father except through me one-of-a-kind claim he had a one-of-a-kind death. That as Isaiah said, he was bruised, he was wounded, he was pierced for our transgressions and iniquities. That in some way he was numbered among the transgressors for you and for me. 
That as Paul would say, in some way he was delivered up for our sins. That in some way he that knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That as he was dying, in some way he was demonstrating the love of God for us. That while we were sinners, he was dying for us. That in some way you don't understand and in some way I don't understand. He took all of your sin. Ever how long you're going to live. He took all of your sin from birth to grave and he carried it on the cross. It was a one of a kind death. No one ever died like Jesus died. He stood in the place of humanity. He bore the judgment of God so that we wouldn't have to. John said it was a one of a kind death, but he had a one of a kind resurrection. He's been raised to die no more. And because of that, he has a one of a kind name. That there's no other name given among men and among women whereby we can be saved that at the name of Jesus that at the name of Jesus at the name of Jesus that's where salvation's found there's no other name given among by among men whereby we can be saved except at the name of Jesus and then Paul would come along later on a follower and apostle and he would say that God has given to Jesus a name which is above every name. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the what? To the glory. To the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the word that became flesh. Thank you for God who became a man. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the Son of God. God, I pray that we will be reignited with a love for our Savior. That, God, we would be filled with awe when we think of Jesus. When we think of how big and how incredible that when we decide that Jesus is who he says he is, that we understand that it informs the way we have to live the rest of our lives. Jesus, you are worthy of our surrender. You are worthy of us walking away from the things that we need to walk away from. You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our submission. You are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And you are worthy of our worship. You are the timeless and spaceless God who stepped into time and place to redeem, to give life, to show your light to reveal the glory of God in your love for us and your sacrifice for us and your invitation to us to receive you for eternal life 
and better life. In Jesus' name.